You're listening to Irish Illustrated Insider. It's Monday, April 18th. I'm Tim Priester with Kevin Sinclair of Irish Illustrated Today and Pete Sampson of The Athletic. We are talking uh, recruiting pretty much in segment one because we've had a lot happening here in the last few days, and then we'll get into more of of Notre Dame football, the day-to-day here through spring practice in segment two. But I want to start with you, Kevin. Um, the news over the weekend that Justin Rett, who was visiting Georgia, uh, and while during his trip to Georgia, he decommitted from Notre Dame. I don't know if that necessarily means that he is uh, locked in with Georgia, but uh, Justin Rett, a, a, a real quality player that, that um, you know, was an exciting part of class of 2023 for Notre Dame is no longer there. What can you tell us about that situation? Yeah, you know, from the outset with Justin Rett, um, I spoke with him just a couple hours after he had left his vi- his first visit, which I think was like June 1st. And not not I don't mean this in a negative way at all, but he definitely struck me as more of the kind of kid who would go to a school like Georgia or Oklahoma, something along those lines, more so than Notre Dame. So when they landed Justin Red, it was kind of one of those, okay, well, it's the Freeman era and we're sort of breaking precedent here. They're going to get these Justin Rett types. And so, you know, eventually, you know, of course he's decommitted. There was this um, official visit to Georgia was sort of cooking for a while. And, um, you know, obviously when you're any program, including Notre Dame, you don't want your players to take, you know, unofficial visits, you know, oftentimes like a four hour pot by of a school and you leave official visits a much bigger deal. And, you know, when that, that happens, obviously he's not really committed. So, He's decommitted, you know, looking at the sort of impact of that, you you know, they don't have a heavy upperclassman um, crop right now. So looking at the last two classes, that's six cornerbacks. So Ryan Barnes, Philip Riley, Chance Tucker, Jaden Mickey, Jaden Bellamy, uh, and Benjamin Morrison. So pretty good numbers in the underclassman ranks there, but again, pretty light in the upperclassmen. So they do need to add in this class, despite adding those six cornerbacks of the last two cycles. And Micah Bell is a guy they offered during that St. Patrick's Day 2024 offer blitz. They also offered a 2023 recruit, Micah Bell. I actually got on the phone with him yesterday. I guess sort of the footnotes on him are, you know, he's from Houston, the Houston metro area. That's where there are tons of big enrollment, big time Texas 6A and 5A programs. But him, his family, and his brother, who is a Georgia 2022 signee, by the way, um, decided on the Kincaid School, which is a really good private school, um, you know, which is, bodes well for Notre Dame, of course. And, you know, he's a gold medalist in a 100-meter, 200-meter long jump, triple, triple jump, 10-4-1 speed. Definitely on the small size where physically, if he were to come to Notre Dame, he would be like a Tariq Bracey type who... You know, might be pushing maybe right around 170 when he arrived and they need to add size. But he brings the kind of speed we haven't seen at Notre Dame on defense and I don't know how long. A truly elite speed, basically Chris Tyree type speed, but more nimble and bouncy and looser in the hips. And uh, that with some instincts, you know, um, could lead to, you know, an impact corner down the stretch. So that's sort of the talk right now with the Red D commitment. I want to talk about Micah Bell a, a little bit more because I have uh, prepared a film review of him as well. But Pete, I, w- did you get any clues to the Justin Rett decision coming up? Uh, I mean, not before it occurred, yeah. uh, but certainly coming out of it, you know, talking to 
a couple people, you know, not as engaged with the class, um, you know, which is pretty typical with guys decommitting. I, I do, you know, whenever you hear a decommit in 2022, you hear all this like, oh, was NIL this, NIL that. I mean, it it is Georgia, right? Like Georgia won a bunch of college football games last year, so the idea of a, a someone flipping from Notre Dame to Georgia um, purely for athletic reasons is not ridiculous. Um, so yeah, but I. There were a couple comments on social media. I, I hope they were sarcastic that like, well, I thought Marcus Freeman was going to fix this kinds of thing. <laughs> like that's, you know, this is a, it's a human nature college football issue. Um, I think the, what Marcus Freeman would fix goes to how much detail Kevin has on somebody like Micah Bell, that Notre Dame has found other options, other uh, sort of threads to pull uh, Michael Bell in terms of like his recruiting ranking, Kevin, you can correct me if I'm wrong here is like basically the same, like it's comparable, right? Um, it, yeah. So, so if you lose basically a, a top 100 style corner and then you have another one that's almost ready to go, um, that's a good place to be. I, I think that shows that is more indicative of organized progressive recruiting than losing than. I think people should be focusing on a singular decommitment. I understand the surprise because because of the the difference that Marcus Freeman has made as a recruiter, but this is major college football, and those kind of decisions are going to be made by individual players and recruits, and not even Marcus Freeman can can prevent that from happening completely. Uh, Christian Gray is also a guy that's still in yep. the mix for Notre Dame at corner, and uh, it, it was Tom Loy that put in a. Um, a crystal ball for, for Micah Bell. And I, uh, I love Micah Bell's game. He's, he's a little small. There's no doubt about it, but he's, uh, he's savvy and his speed is if you're going to use the word blazing, his speed is blazing. I mean, he can absolutely fly. Kevin, I agree with you about his flexibility and his nimbleness. He has that as well. Most of what you see of him on film is, at running back where his vision is just absolutely tremendous. Most guys rely on the blocks of their teammates to free himself up for the alley to run through. He creates those alleys with his foot in the ground and his elusiveness and his ability to bounce around. I think he's a spectacular athlete. He has a lot to learn about cornerback and we don't know that Notre Dame's got Micah Bell uh, locked up, but I think it's looking pretty good for him. And he is a, uh, a pretty good quote fallback guy uh, when you lose a guy like Justin Rep. Now, um, Steve Wiltfong from 24 7 Sports put out a crystal ball for 2024 quarterback CJ Carr. Um, and Kevin, I that one took me by surprise. Uh, what are your thoughts on that situation? Yeah, you know, I think it's surprising for a lot of people initially because, you know, his connections to Michigan, his grandfather, his dad. Um, but, you know, what I did not too long ago is I watched the film of Julian Sain, the other, you know, high-end quarterback in 2024 and CJ Carr. And the way I saw it, um, this is based on just on highlight film. Um, I thought that CJ Carr, they're both comparable kind of like top 50 quarterbacks, but CJ Carr looks like he has a bit more size and growth potential, a bit more strength. Um, So I feel like, you know, his, his ceiling as far as a passer might be a little higher than saying, but you're kind of splitting hairs there uh, with two elite quarterbacks. Now 
Um, it's out of Michigan, and it's really early, so long way to go there. And I think that's why some would, would have picked in this early. But, you know, Steve Wolfong has been doing this a long time. He put that pick in. Um, obviously, that's a significant development. It's also interesting that it comes while they're also pursuing another five-star quarterback out of Michigan. So it's going to be interesting to track those. C.J. Carr, um, he is my you know personal preference among the two uh, elite quarterbacks who are recruiting there, and it's going to be an interesting one to track. I think you know, talking to people around Notre Dame about C.J. Carr, um, you know, sort of in the recruiting industry, like I get the sense that he's the top, he's their top guy on the board um, at that position, which I, I don't think I was necessarily like assuming that to be the case. I mean, you look at somebody like, um, you know, Dylan Rayola from Arizona, who's, you know, five-star number one overall prospect on 24 seven, like you just sort of naturally assume sometimes that like, well, Notre Dame will see it the same way, but I don't, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, and CJ Carr, if like, that that would be their their top guy on the board as it stands right now in twenty four. He can he can fling it, man. I mean, he is he is the prototypical drop back quarterback that scans the field and just lets it rip. I don't know that he has a, a a cannon per se, but his accuracy is is really really good. I haven't studied him a whole lot, probably nearly as much as you have, Kevin. But the main question here is not so much whether uh, it should be Saiyan or Carr, but. What does this mean with Dante Moore, quarterback of uh, 2023 that uh, just visited Miami, will visit LSU and look at some other places? What do you, um, how do you read this situation? CJ Carr's commitment, I'm sure, doesn't impact Dante Moore, uh, but Dante Moore's commitment could certainly impact CJ Carr's. Yeah, I mean, I think you you just sort of said it. I know that. <clears throat> You know, Tom Loy was sort of the first one to kind of break that at Irish Illustrator, where it sort of sounded like, you know, the Dante Moore commitment could impact uh, more, more negatively the recruitment of CJ Carr versus Julian Sane. And if you're not familiar with Julian Sane, he's a five star quarterback of Carlsbad in California. You might remember Asa Turner from a few cycles ago, same school, um, good program. So, that's sort of where that sits, but I don't think you really need to worry about that. The priority has to be Dante Moore, of course. They're in it with a couple of quarterbacks. If that's going to have one shy away from you, so be it. The priority is 2023, obviously. And what's your latest read, yeah. Kevin, on Dante Moore? Well, you know, it's it's tricky to um, sort of state who the big player is outside of Notre Dame when he has a bunch of visits ahead, right? Things will change as visits come ahead. And, and even though the NIL situation, we've been around it for a little bit of time here, it's still sort of uncharted territory where it's still difficult to know, one, what programs, uh, different schools and NIL deals will be available and in, in place and pitched. And number two, how each individual recruit will react to that. So that, you know, there's a bit of a guessing game there. But I would say, you know, Miami, um, talking about multiple trips to there, Josh Gaddis is down there. That's something that's important to remember. He was the offensive coordinator at Michigan, of course. Um, Dante Moore was offered there as a, as a freshman, longstanding bond there. Now he's at Miami. There's a bit of, you know, buzz there at the new head coach. They're very aggressive in recruiting right now. Um, and then, of course, I'd keep an eye on Oregon. So I think to talk about who the, the top contender is. Um, I think that that's, that could change and shift as time goes along here. I still like Notre Dame in the end, but you know, when there's, there's a 
fair level of uncertainty there where you don't know when he's going to commit, how many visits he's going to take, the time frame of that. So it's definitely a nerve-wracking affair for Notre Dame, I'm sure, but there's still a fair amount of confidence around there that Notre Dame is going to win that one out. Pete? I I feel the same way. It's um, I think it was, we talked about this in last week's podcast. Like if, if NIL wasn't a thing, I, I feel like this would probably be over. Um, and I agree with Kevin. Like my like Miami is is clearly a, a player here. Um, as he's down, as Dante Moore is down there this weekend. But um, if there was a school that I would be wary of if I was Notre Dame the most, it, I think it would probably be Oregon. Um, and it's you know purely purely for NIL issues. So it um, those are that would be what I would watch with him. If if you see Dante Moore sending an official visit for Oregon, I think that's that's something to be like, okay, um, you know this is this this could keep, turn into a, a more of a fight than um, <laughs> Notre Dame would like. Yeah. Before we wrap up segment one and go to questions in segment two, Kevin, any other? Any other recruits on the on the front burner here that, that you want to talk about? You know, I think I would just mention, you know, a, a guy that I've been working on recently is offensive guard Sam Pendleton. I actually got on the phone with his offensive line coach last night. And just to give you a kind of footnotes, because he'll be important to note, um, myself and Tom Lloyd both predicted him to Notre Dame. He is a six foot four, 300 pound offensive tackle at a high school in North Carolina. His dad is a huge human being who played um, apparently both ways in the trenches at William and Mary, uh, his twin sister is a star basketball player. He's a 4.0 GPA student. He told me he wants to study mechanical engineering. He visited Notre Dame and you, I could really tell that he really took uh, the whole Harry Houston and uh, Notre Dame O-line culture in and, and really loved it. And that's a big part of why we predicted him comes from a very sort of Notre Dame profile type family, from what I understand. That's a guy we need to know. Serious uh, lifter in the weight room, very strong, uh, and he'll be a guard at the next level. So that's one to keep an eye on. And last thing, I believe Tom Lloyd threw a crystal ball on, on Devin Houston, the defensive lineman. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, Devin's uh, really interesting. I watched his film recently, one of his like full game films. Okay, so he is from Ontario. His older brother was an elite basketball recruit who also transferred down to uh, the U.S. and then he went off to Michigan. Devin eventually followed suit. Different school, but St. James School, which is an international boarding school in Maryland. It's where uh, Alabama receiver John Mechie played. He's there. He's at six foot five, two seventy, two seventy five. When I watch him on film, though, with how long he is, he looks and plays bigger than that. And one thing that some people don't know is he also plays left tackle. And his head coach told me a lot of schools are recruiting him as, as a left tackle as well. Really good feat. Notre Dame's recruiting him as an interior defensive lineman. Great student, high character kid. He was also a tight end when he first got to that school. So that sort of tells you about his feet, his athleticism. Uh, and it's, look, it's always looked good for Notre Dame. You always wondered about Michigan with his brother having gone there. But now it's looking like Notre Dame's a front runner. All right, thanks, guys. Coming back, segment two, burning up the boards. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. 
Thank you for listening to the Irish Illustrated Insider Podcast. If you enjoy our coverage of Notre Dame football, please consider supporting the podcast with a small donation. Go to irishillustrated.com slash support. Your support will help Irish Illustrated continue to be the leader in coverage of Notre Dame athletics. Segment two, burning up the boards. We start with a question from TDISU19. I've heard mixed reviews on Jaden Thomas from different outlets. Some say he looks great and is making a move. Others say he doesn't and has a long way to go. What do you guys, what do the guys inside the Goog think about where he stands at the end of spring? You know, I think before spring started, I had heard that there were some concerns about, you know, where he was conditioning wise, um, you know, taking his body from a high school body to a college wide receivers body. Um, I have not, I was not actually at Notre Dame when Stucky was available to the media. And I know you, Tim, I think you had mentioned on a podcast and written that uh, Thomas had made a move at least relative to Deion Colsey. And it's like, I I have a hard time judging this one because like the last practice we were at, they had four scholarship receivers. So like, he's made a move up the depth chart because there's nobody else there. Um, you know, they, they need something from him. Um, but I think that's probably more still a developmental guy than a guy that's sort of box ready to go. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I would, I would just add this in terms of just the greater context about Jaden Thomas, when he played at pace Academy, his wide receiver coach was Terrence Edwards. who's a former pro receiver. He's a very well-known receiver trainer in Georgia. His head coach was Chris Slade, a former Pro Bowl player. And they had other former Pro Bowlers in their coaching staff. You can believe that. Very, very well-coached kid who does everything quite well. And that's, you know, when it comes to young receivers getting on the field, something that keeps them away from that often is not, you know, not being able to block and not being able to focus on the smaller details. So something I sort of like had heard later last fall and something I kind of expected from him going into college is he'd be quite good and well-rounded all the little things, even if he might not be dynamic and elite with maybe speed or one certain thing. So I think he's like, you know, I would imagine he sort of gained the confidence of coaches to go out there and not make fatal errors, whether he's able to separate and make big plays. I think that's something you just kind of have to prove on the field when you get your chance. I think I mentioned this in a previous podcast. And one of the things that he said about him was that, you know, in terms of like physicality, playing physically, he does that very naturally, but that he needs to allow his athleticism to take over a, a little bit too. So, and yeah, I, yeah, I was told that, that Jaden Thomas was ahead of Deion Colsey. Now you have to clarify that a little bit because Colsey started out the spring with a, with an early concussion from the first week. So uh, that, that put, Colsey behind a little bit, but I think generally speaking, they feel like Jaden Thomas is the guy that's a little bit more naturally physical playing the position and they need him to step forward. They're looking for guys with a little bit more size to play the W position. We've kind of speculated about what they might do there in addition to pursuing, you know, one or two guys with a little bit, a little bit more size, a little bit more strength. You know, they don't have to be that, that much bigger, anything in the six, six, two ranges qualifies as a bigger receiver but uh you know Jaden Thomas is really young he's a second semester freshman right now and I think there's some upside there but he does need to get in between now and August he needs to get into significant serious 
tremendous physical condition in order to compete at the level that they would like. Next question from Caden MC. I enjoyed the Sean Wooden article. Curious if you think that's an example of an Ohio State alum intuitively understanding how certain things should be done at the very highest level of college football in a way that maybe Brian Kelly didn't, or is it just a personality difference? And what Caden MC is referring to is personality difference with, with Marcus Freeman. I wrote the story with Sean Wooden or I interviewed Sean Wooden. And he just, he's another example of a guy. He will be in town for the blue gold game. And another example of a former player that is really excited about the inclusion of former players into the current Notre Dame football program. And, and um, you know, and, and I've, and I've written this and, I, and I've said this, I think Marcus Freeman, Marcus Freeman chose Ohio state over Notre Dame. And I, I think the recruiting process from 20 plus years ago in, involving Marcus Freeman with Notre Dame, it stuck with him. He understood Notre Dame. He chose Ohio state because it was kind of a family decision, but, he understands Notre Dame, and plus he he had been here last year as a defensive coordinator and, and soaked up the the Notre Dame environment. So I think it's a combination of all those things. Clearly, his personality and his recruiting approach is much different than Brian Kelly's, uh, but I think that he instinctually or naturally knows exactly how Notre Dame functions, and he embraces what Notre Dame has to offer. And I think that we're hearing that and seeing that um, you know, as, as it relates to his recruiting. I talked to Sean Wooden. I, I met him at the USC game last year. And then um, we talked later for an interview um, on a different story. I was working on actually on the, the 30th anniversary of the sugar bowl game against Florida. But um, you know, once we started talking about Marcus, it's, I mean, it's clear that Sean is a guy who is very popular around South Florida Um sort of knows everybody down there. And I think that's like Notre Dame could always use more, especially former players of guys who just know everybody guys who are sort of plugged into the youth football scene, um, you know, that are also advocates for Notre Dame itself. So it's uh, I'm not surprised at all that Marcus is sort of building some of these bridges back up. Um, and look, I mean, Notre Dame has won a bunch of games without the alumni involvement. Um but it can only be a positive moving forward. Yeah, it just creates such a more positive atmosphere, and that's why I'm looking forward to this weekend and trying to hook up with some of the some of the guys I've known through the years. Um, you know that that uh, that will be in town for this. But yeah, to to add a finer point with Sean Wooden, he uh, you know he played with Miami Dolphins, and he ended up him and his family settling in Florida, and so he feels like he knows. He didn't, I, I don't know that we got in too much about the specifics of, of guys that he played with, but he said, you know, I played with guys in uh, maybe not so much in high school, but college and professionally that are high school coaches in Florida. So he does feel like he's got a pipeline there that Notre Dame can benefit. The question that Wooden was asking of Marcus Freeman was, how can we help short of contacting recruits, with your, which you're not supposed to do as a graduate? And the response from Marcus Freeman was, well, you can help cultivate the relationship with the coaches at, in at the high school coaches in Florida. So um, yet another way that, that former Notre Dame football players can help, you know, the current, uh, the, the current Notre Dame football team question from ND zero two. I'm sorry, Kevin, did you have anything to add to that? No, I think we're good to go ahead. Okay. Question from ND zero two, five, eight, seven, six. 
Having interacted with Brian Kelly the last 12 years and knowing people who work for him, do you expect he will negatively recruit against Notre Dame when Dante Moore visits? If so, what aspects do you think he will harp on, i.e. lack of elite quarterback play, lack of explosive wide receivers, academics, faith, parietals? I'm sure Brian Kelly's got a longer list than that. <laughs> I tell you, wouldn't the lack of quarterback play be a little bit of uh, self-incrimination there for Brian Kelly? Like, <laughs> well, I think he, he, I think maybe guy. he needs lack of quarterback development in Notre yeah. Dame. Perhaps that's yeah, what he meant. Still, I mean, kind yeah, of the I, same. Like he was I in charge you. of that. I hear you. Um, I, I mean, yeah, I, I would expect Brian Kelly to go pretty hard after Notre Dame. Um, I don't. I wouldn't automatically assume it's going to be vindictive. Um, and I remember asking Tony Alford about this when he went to Ohio State. I was like, so, like, what's your pitch against Notre Dame? And he's like, I love Notre Dame. Like, but I'm not going to point out the positives of that when I'm recruiting for Ohio State. Um, so, I mean, you could you could do it in a fair and honest way. Um, I don't, like, I think the Dante Moore situation is going to be a rarity. Um, I realize Christian Gray is also interested in LSU as high school coaches on staff at LSU now, but um, I don't expect a whole lot of Notre Dame LSU recruiting battles. Um, but I would expect Brian Kelly to be have some have some choice ways to spin uh, Notre Dame in um, in a way that sort of turns Dante Moore's head at least a little bit. Kevin, what was your perspective on the AP story with Ralph Russo that? Uh that Brian Kelly contributed to? Well, I mean, we all saw how he operated at Notre Dame in terms of recruiting. And I think Pete mentioned it last week. It was sort of hilarious to hear him talk about the six weeks of recruiting. Uh, Well, he really should be recruiting year round, especially for the head coach (laughs) at a school like Notre Dame. I don't know why I didn't notice that. I only actually sort of picked up on that when Pete mentioned in the podcast, and that was quite hilarious. Um, You know, I I think everything that's going to be read about what Brian Kelly has said is, um, you know, it'd be overblown a bit. But I did think, you know, some of it was silly. I think the nutrition thing is overblown to extent. Yes, Notre Dame could use you know, and an advanced treating table. And I think that stuff will come, but we're talking about chefs here and things like that. I saw a lot of comments from people. Oh, you know, Brian Kelly just can't start harping on Notre Dame. Why can't he move on? Well, he was asked the question, you know, he was just <laughs> answering the question. Um, it's not like he's, you know, drumming up a presser uh, yeah. on his own yeah. to just go I mean, and blast Notre Dame. If Priester and I were in Brian Kelly's office at Baton Rouge, we would be asking these same questions. Exactly. So, you know, that's, that's my thought on that. Question from uh, Dashing Domer, and I'm going to go ahead and and respond to this first. Is signing five-star quarterbacks the only way to get it done? Sure. Dante Moore is a great prospect, but the overwhelming amount of angst about the process makes one question the sense of all of this. What was Brady Quinn ranked? What was Deshaun Kaiser ranked? Jarius Jackson, Kevin McDougal, all great Irish quarterbacks who could have challenged for a championship on the right team, and McDougal almost won it. My response to that is, I, I don't care what I don't care what Dante Moore is ranked. Look at the film. <laughs> I mean, that's that that's what our that's it doesn't. I don't care what anybody else ranks Dante Moore. I see a great five star quarterback prospect. So it's the film, and yeah, those guys can be developed, and that's why. Pete, remember last week when we had the question about if they don't get Dante Moore, will it ruin the class? 
and, and I ended up agreeing with you just from a semantic <laughs> standpoint, but let's say they weren't able to get him, but then they, then they landed a, a veteran quarterback in the transfer portal that you could plug in in place. I mean, it's still my, my point being at the time was it still has the potential to be a great class and you want it to be Dante Moore, but if we're something were to fall through and you could get a, a grad transfer quarterback that's already experienced, I'm not sure that it, it would matter that much, but my, you know, my opinions about Dante Moore have nothing to do with rankings. I love his film. I mean, this is, this is an issue of how we evaluate what Notre Dame can be. Um, no, these quarterbacks that are listed um, throw Ian book in there. Heck you can throw Jack Cohn in there if you want, like, Notre Dame can make the playoff with a three-star quarterback uh, to win a national championship, to win two college football playoff games. You need more from that position. And then, and if you want to say like, oh, but, but, but Stetson Bennett at Georgia, like, yeah. And you know what? If you sign seven five-star prospects every year, more power to you. But that's that's what not Notre, Notre Dame is not stacked up with that kind of roster. That's a, like Kevin McDougal was Stetson Bennett. The roster he played on was completely ridiculous in terms of how talented it was. Like that, that his senior year was the senior year of the greatest recruiting class in, in modern yeah. history at Notre Dame. So yeah, I mean, if you could give uh, Ian Book, Aaron Taylor, and Jeff Burris and that level of talent around a BY, like, sure. Um, it's not the only way to do it. But it is, it's the quickest way to do it, in my opinion. It's, it's the Notre Dame can make the biggest, it can make a jump at quarterback with one player that it would probably take eight or nine players spread around the roster to make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to make the same, like when I was looking at this question, it's the same argument, like basically the question of do they have to have an elite superstar quarterback to win a national championship? I guess. Technically, no, but to your to your point, Pete, Georgia, they had, you know, didn't have that superstar quarterback, but their senior class last year was the 2018 recruiting class. They signed eight five stars in that one class that made up their senior class last year. You know, what was left of it, which was actually quite a bit. They signed a bunch of five stars and big impact players and the classes, you know, beside each, each of the, beside the 2018 class. So you know, there'd have to be a lot of stars aligning and you'd have to build that type of defense. Now, Notre Dame perhaps can do that four years into Marcus Freeman's uh, tenure at Notre Dame where defensive recruiting picked up. But again, you need those receivers too. You need a cohesive, strong offensive line. You need uh, consistency and taking care of the ball. So many stars need to align. So at Notre Dame, you know, particularly needs that star quarterback when it doesn't have, uh, you know, Alabama and Georgia style recruiting so consistently. How high was Brady Quinn ranked? He was ranked pretty highly, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. A, I mean, he was a four star top. I don't yeah. think he was top hundred, but I mean, he was. He would have been the highest of the group. Prospect. Yeah, the highest of the group mentioned there. Yeah, I mean, Ky I, Kaiser was a four star prospect. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't remember Jarius yeah. Jackson's recruitment at all. That was actually something that was before my time. But um, it's. You know, you'd rather be able to develop a guy with higher-end physical tools than less. Um, I think that that's pretty straightforward. I think that's – you mentioned McDougal and Stetson Bennett. I think that's a that's a legit comparison, especially when you look at what was 
what was around them at, at that time. Question from Golden Bluegrass with the upcoming spring ball draft. Who would be your first pick on Wednesday? By the on Wednesday, Notre Dame is going to have uh, the draft. Have you heard any details about that? I have not. I need to make a call about that. Yeah, we're 48 hours away from that. what we're walking into. (laughs) But, you know, I think it has the potential to be kind of fun. And um, I think it's pretty cool that they're going to allow the media there for it. I think it's a a pretty good opportunity for Notre Dame um, and for us in the media. But uh, so the question is, who would be your first pick? Um. In, in the draft, if you are one of the captains uh, that is selecting for Notre Dame that day. And I think we're, we're assuming that we get to assemble a team for a real game, right? Like a real yes. spring game opposed to just like a vanilla walkthrough. Which right? is, yes. yes. Which might be, be what we watch on right. Saturday. So I, I think even though Michael Mayer is far and away the best player, I have to start with the quarterback that I think is the best on the team. So Tyler Buckter would be my first pick. Okay. Mayer. Kevin, I hope I'm not stepping all over your answer here, but we don't expect to see a whole lot of Michael Mayer uh, on Saturday in the blue gold game. Uh, You can still choose him if you would like, because I would understand you'd want a guy like that on your team, but who would be your first pick in the uh, blue gold game draft? Well, wouldn't you know it? I had Michael Mayer penciled down. (laughs) I also, I also wrote though, if not Isaiah Foster, I mean, I think, Mm. You know, behind him, there's there's not, you know, it's not like back in the day where there was Julian Apara and Dalen Hayes. It's sort of Isaiah Foskey, and there isn't another one of those six five, six six edge rushers. So, you know, uh, pretty invaluable guy there. Uh, it's not Michael Mayer, it's Isaiah Foskey for me. Uh, I, have a, I, I have a few choices here. And, again, it's based upon backup. And I look at, I mean, really, Foskey's backup is Justin Adamalola, who you know is going to play 100, 110% every time he's on the field for a snap. So I understand why you pick Foskey, but I wouldn't pick him. Some of the guys that I would look at as, you know, guys behind them, Brandon Joseph to me is, is clearly the best safety out there. Uh, Alton Fisher, I think, separate themselves as, as offensive tackles. Um, really, and I don't think Jack Tizer would be the first pick in the draft, but I think the separation between him and anybody behind him at Rover in terms of knowledge of, of what they're doing defensively bracy as the, as the nickel. Uh, but I, I think I, if I had to choose one, I guess I would probably say Brandon Joseph because he's intercepting every other pass is thrown in his direction this spring from what we understand question from Panthers, 23, 23 with Mitchell Evans size and skill as a pass catcher in the wide receiver rooms, lack of size. Do you envision him and Michael Mayer in the red zone packages being a realistic option for Tommy Reese. Kevin? Oh, yeah, I would say absolutely. I mean, two towering tight ends is always a good idea in the red zone. I would say it would be especially true if, one, Mitchell Evans takes, you know, pretty big step forward and they believe he's a real reliable and consistent pass catcher. And I would say, two, if Deion Colsey hasn't taken a pretty big leap uh, two, uh, because you got to think that without Colsey in terms of that body type in the red zone, they don't have really another Chase Claypool, uh, Miles Boykin type. And I know Joe Wilkins isn't six four, but he's a pretty big body type and he's out right now. Um, so yeah, I mean, two towering tight ends in the red zone is sort of a no brainer for me, especially like I said, if Mitchell Evans has kind of become a real, you know, reliable pass catcher for them. It's, it's an interesting idea. I'd, 
I don't know if Reese would go there. Um, I mean, Mitchell Evans is, I think, an interesting prospect for like probably a year from now as like, oh, he's Notre Dame's starting tight end and Notre Dame feels good about it. Um, you know, is he more athletic than George Takis? I think so. Um, you know, but Kevin's point is probably the best one. It, if you have not found another receiver like Colsey, Thomas, Lindsey, Wilkins, a grad transfer, um, you know, to go with styles, then maybe you want to go two tight ends down there in a space where you can also have Tyler Buckner doing read option to Logan Diggs um, and running it himself or giving it. I mean, that, that could be a real pain in the butt to defend. From what I we understand. Sorry, I was just going to say, there's also the, you know, increased blocking element of having two tight ends on the field uh, and running the football screen game, those types of things too. Right. I, you know, I, I, we understand that Michael Mayer may have been uh, lobbying recently with Tommy Reese to be more, more of a target when it comes to the red zone. And that certainly makes sense. And I would even throw in Kevin Bauman's name. I actually talked to him about it last week and, uh, I love talking to Bauman because he's uh, he's a he's a guy from New Jersey that is not lacking in confidence, and you know he believes that uh, that he owns the owns the uh, end zone when it comes to red zone play. So maybe they have three guys there. He's not as, he's not as tall, probably not as quite as as the stature of of Evans and and Mayer, but he's he's pretty good in the red zone as well. Uh, and you know, Mary, Mary, Tobias Merriweather could be an option. Too, although we were saying that last year with Colsey and it didn't materialize. Question from Irish from A2. Which player from the 2021 team will Notre Dame miss the most, Pete? Kyle Hamilton. I don't know. Do I need to go further or can I just leave it there? Well, I think that, you know, because he was injured, I mean, Kyle Hamilton, the fact is in 2021, Notre Dame had Kyle Hamilton for half a year. Right. Yeah. Right. No, you give me a healthy Kyle Hamilton for 12 games. That would, yeah, that's, that's my or, guy. Or if it was, or because he was injured, who would your choice be besides him? Hmm. Then it would be Austin. I mean, then, I, and I don't think you could have a, could you even mention a candidate beyond those two? Well, Kyron Williams was so great at what he did, but, Obviously, the running back room is pretty well yeah. stocked right now. Not not to the level we have. An, we have a question about this. Not to the level of Kyron Williams. I don't believe. I don't think there's yeah. a Kyron Williams there. How about um, this is a kind of O'Malley style rephrasing this question? But if I said, who, if you could have Kevin Austin on this team, would it change the record you predicted for Notre Dame to finish this year? I think yes. I would say I think yes. But if I gave you Kyron Williams, I, I would. I'm not sure that I would. That's a good point. You know, I, I yeah. think, and some of that just it so much hinges on what else is at the position. Kevin Austin would be far and away the best the, receiver the, on this team. The thing about the thing about Kyron Williams is you always felt like, or at least I did, that if you put the ball in in Kyron Williams' hands, he will maximize that opportunity. And I'm not sure that we're ready to say that about any of the running backs. I'm, I, you, you can't say that about Chris Tyree. I don't think that he's proven that. And I, Logan Diggs is, is still, to me, a little bit too much east-west at times. Kevin, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, you guys just ran through everything I was going to say. When the question first popped up, I initially thought, of course, Kyle Hamilton. And I thought, you know what? He was injured and missed most of the season. And then it was, well, it's pro- it's got to be Kevin Austin, right? Because you know, we're kind of hoping 
Braden Lindsay take, you know, a pretty big step. Let's just say he doesn't, and he's similar to what he was last year. I think he would be missing Kevin Austin quite a bit in that scenario. Beyond him, I was thinking, you know, Kyron Williams as well. And it's like, yeah, like you guys just said, there's a really good stable of backs there. But, you know, he was a guy who put the ball in his hands when you really needed a big play, and he would often make it. His screen game ability, but then also his leadership ability and the, the um, you know, sort of the energy he, you know, inserted to the in the offense every time he got on the field. That just everything about him is aura. I mean, I guess if you really want to go beyond them, you could talk about Kurt Heinisch, but he's a nose tackle, and it's sort of like you know, it's, it's not exactly, a, you know, he's not getting the ball in his hands, and he's not uh, out in space or anything. So yeah, I think that you, you got to kind of pick one of the above there. Yeah, the, the thing with Kevin Austin, if he was coming back this year, it would be the Kevin Austin of year two of his development as a as a full time player, as right. opposed to last year where he, he was. He was hit and miss from game to game, and I think a lot of that had to do with just the the fact that he hadn't played a whole lot of football in the previous two, three years. Uh, question from Jim Booney, CRS. Prince Colley had high expectations coming in from high school. How do you feel he is progressing, and what qualifies as a good year for him in terms of development, in your opinion? Kevin. Uh- I was like, yeah. Kevin, you go ahead. I mean, we, we both have sort of gotten to know uh, one of Prince Collie's mentors pretty well um, over the last year right. and a half. Right. Well, first off, I mean, he was really close with Nick Lazinski. And I think when he left, I think in terms of a player, it would impact most or who would be most upset about it would be Prince, of course. But I've heard, um, you know, talking to sources, you know, know him, close to him. He really likes James Laurinaitis and Al Golden and that's going well. Uh, there now for him it's just it's a difficult situation because you have I don't know if you call it a full-out log jam but you know you have Bo Bauer and you have J.D. Bertrand and then you have uh, Maris Liefeld back right and so I think for him it's going to be about getting in a rotational role whether it'll be behind Liefeld which I think it will be and then he has to shine in those opportunities right so it's about making plays you know under the lights when he gets those opportunities, it's, you know, it's not an uncommon thing. He's still, you know, he's a freshman right now. He didn't uh, enroll early. And another thing is he came from, you know, a small high school in rural Tennessee. It's not like he was coming from St. John Bosco or good council. It was a smaller school, lower competition. It was always going to be, um, you know, a, an uphill climb for him to, for, you know, just to, to mesh well at the college game. But he is, you know, very talented. He looks like what an impact linebacker looks like physically. And hopefully when he gets his opportunities and, again, a rotational role likely behind the UFL, um, he'll, you know, pounce on that opportunity. I would expect yeah. – go ahead, Pete. I was going to say a rotational role, um, but not in just sort of like a garbage time kind of way. Um, you know, I, I mean, even thinking in terms of um, – you know, maybe Bo Bauer in 2020. I realize that the, the position's a little different, but a guy that makes you feel like, okay, he's not a starter, but he's not a backup either. Um, mm-hmm. And I think if you can get that one, it'd be great for Kali to make him feel more invested in Notre Dame, but I think it'd be just good for the defense overall. I, I agree with what you're saying, but I think it's going to be difficult because they are going to have a hard time taking Leah Fall off the field totally agree right so agree too so that means you know special teams for Kali get comfortable hit some people on special teams make a name for yourself on special teams like Bo Bauer did 
And then, yeah, I, you know, I agree. Uh, you, you don't want it to just be mop up. You'd like to have the confidence that you can insert him in there. But I, you know, I think like when I look at a guy like Jalen Snead, um, you know, I think, I think Snead's got further to travel than Kali. Kevin, you mentioned about Kali's background and stuff. I think Snead's going to, going to have further to travel to get to the level where Kali is right now during his freshman year. So we'll see, but he's a, you know, Prince Collie's a heck of a prospect. Uh, Maris Lee Fowle has been in the program a little bit longer and you want to lean on him, but you'd like to see some, some of Prince Collie at, at, at crunch time. Question from Stubber, maybe Stuber. Uh, Nordame now has an amazing stable of running backs. How do you divvy up playing time? Do you let attrition play out? And if so, who do you see leaving? Well, I wouldn't go amazing. Um, I think they've got a, a good group of running backs with potential. Um, in terms of divvying up playing time, I don't. I don't know how Dylan McCullough is going to manage that. Um, but I would expect all four of them, and I, I guess I'm not even including Jabron Payne in this. But if you just if before Payne, I would expect all four of them to play, um, and which is probably more than anything, a compliment to Jadarian Price and how impressive he's already been to the coaching staff. But leaving, I don't know if any of them are going to leave now. Um, a year from now, you know, when they add a, maybe a couple more guys, I don't think Notre Dame's ever going to have seven scholarship running backs uh, <laughs> at one time. Yeah, but it's kind of difficult to say. Um, one thing I always keep in mind at the running back position is there's you know, it's not always, but it's very often there's an injury. There's one guy who's out, whether it's turf toe or he rolled his ankle in practice. So, you know, there's often when, when there's injuries, opportunity arises too, whether that means uh, Logan Diggs were to be out for a few weeks and estimate get some more work. I'd be interested to see also with the, the buzz we've heard about Jadarian Price and how mature I know he is, whether he can sort of transcend the early entry freshman role and kind of get more work than maybe we're expecting through some really good performance. Um, what are we going to see from Esme? Cause we haven't seen a lot from him. Also, how many, uh, how often are we going to see two running back sets? Um, also, you know, Chris Tyree, I kind of assume he'd be the go-to guy on passing downs because he's, you know, known as a good receiver, but you know, Logan Diggs is a good pass catcher too. He's also a very good pass blocker. So you know, it's kind of tough to say. I think once we know a bit more about the two back sets and that, we'll know more. And, of course, it's always um, the injury thing is is so key at running back. Again, so often an injury, which really shakes things up. Yeah, I wouldn't I would I wouldn't say amazing either. If Kyron Williams came back, then we could then we could probably throw that word around a little bit. But it's a very good group and, and one that you can build upon. Um, you know, Dela McCullough talked about the various roles he says there's you know seven or eight roles that, that the running backs can play down in distance playing a big part of, in that uh that's easier said than done though of course so um you know we'll see I don't want to speculate about anybody leaving now it wouldn't say it's not going to happen at the end of the spring there, there really shouldn't be any reason for any of the running backs to to feel that way and Kevin um why don't you throw in your comments about Jabron Payne and what he brings to to the backfield. Yeah. You know, I, I watched a bit of his highlight film when he was offered by Notre Dame, but that recruitment didn't really develop much more. So I didn't spend much time looking at it, but when 
um, you know, we, we came to know that he was you know, going to be visiting Notre Dame and like committing to Notre Dame. I went back into his film and what had happened was he missed most of his junior season with an ankle injury, missed most of his senior season. Um, he played most of his sophomore year. When I look back on his sophomore season film, at that time, they had a running back, Cam Porter, who is now a running back at Northwestern. He was a senior at the time. And he was very good. But Jabron Payne was, even as just a sophomore, who, by the way, was wearing a cast on his wrist because he had a broken wrist at the time, he was too talented to keep off the field. And I was like very, very surprised with what I saw when I watched his film in terms of pure speed. And he's one of those running backs where in and out, he, he explodes and accelerates out of his cuts. Um, oftentimes you see running backs, obviously, you know, naturally have to sort of slow down when you break down and cut. He is so explosive in and out of his cuts. If he can stay healthy, I think I'm almost certain he's going to be a real pleasant surprise in someone we all kind of consider a steal. Has to stay healthy, though, and we haven't seen that from him yet. Final question today uh, from Sigils, and it's when the 2022 season wraps up, who will have been the most in, impactful coaching addition, Chancey Stuckey or Dylan McCullough? Best case scenario yeah, for- Stuckey, right? <laughs> I mean, I think Notre Dame has good running backs, which we just talked about. <laughs> Receiver? A lot of development necessary, a lot of recruiting necessary. This is uh, yeah, this is like first pick in a draft. You gotta look at this is behind the, up, the, the, the upside the one behind for Stucky is massive. Um, so I think that that's why he will have the biggest impact. I have to agree. And I have to say, um recently talking to um, you know, a parent of a recruit who visited Notre Dame and then spent time with Stucky. The way that they talk, like everyone raves about coaches when they meet them in interviews and that. It's a different type of raving about Chancey Stucky when I talk to people. And then I ended up interviewing a head coach in Georgia about a recruit. And it just so happened Chancey Stucky played at that same high school. And this coach was Coach Stucky's coach in high school. He was an assistant coach at the time. And the way everyone talks about him, yeah, I know everyone reads about coaches, but no, this guy is something special. And I keep hearing that from everyone who's crossed paths with him. Also, when you just talk about, is it going to be Stucky or McCullough again? What you guys just said, yeah, the estimate digs, uh, price, they're all freshmen. So there's some stuff to work on there. But those guys are all very talented. Receivers, a much bigger job. And there's much more opportunity there. To, to make some big splashes because there's, again, there's a lot that needs to be worked on there. But I mean, I would love to hear what you guys also have to say about stuff. You took what you've heard and your own impression of him when you spoke with him in a press here. No, he's, uh, he's, he's easily, he impresses you very easily. And that's why, you know, I think when Tommy Reese, I spoke to him about this. I mean, when he interviewed Stucky, it was basically over at that point. I know there's talk about the, the receivers coach at, at Purdue who moved on, but um, I think everybody that comes in contact with Chancey Stuckey, look how many, I, I mean, how many people have we quoted in the last few months about how they feel about Chancey Stuckey from way back. I started with Brady Quinn and it's gone on from there. He's an extremely impressive guy with a lot of enthusiasm. Dylan McCullough's a little bit more, uh, more of a grizzled vet- veteran, obviously Stuckey really just getting started 
in the coaching game, but I would have to agree that, that it's him, not that McCullough's going to do a poor job coaching those running backs. He's, he has good material to work with and his background in the profession is, is extensive and great. So I think they'll both have an impact, but I think the greater impact is, is going to be with Stucky. We appreciate you joining us today. We'll be back on Friday, April 22nd for Irish illustrated insider.